0: continue moving our way through John chapter 6. It's an awesome chapter of scripture. Just so much in here. So much nourishment for our souls. It's kind of a pun because there's so much talk in here about the bread of life and how Jesus is the bread of life. This morning's title, as you see on the screens beside me there, this morning's title is Our Will to Live and His Will to Give. Our Will to Live and His Will to Give. We all have wired into us something physicians and psychologists call the will to live. I recently read an article from Stanford Medical School about how people with a stronger will to live tend to do better battling cancer. And the article defined the will to live this way, said that the will to live is a force within all of us to fight for survival when our lives are threatened. It's that inner force, that inner motivation to fight and claw and scrap our way to survival. To do whatever it takes to make it through. So that if we're diagnosed with cancer, that's the part of us that wants to fight it. If we're, we find ourselves drowning, that's the part of us that's just, i got to swim. And you keep swimming and swimming and trying to get to shore. If you're ever to be attacked out in public somewhere, or try, someone tries to rob you or kidnap you, it's, it's the part of you that wants to fight back and not let that happen. It's that will to live. It's that desire to survive to get through it. It's what uh, probably what made the Celtics win game six last night. Anyone see that game? Unbelievable. Who, who is a pessimist like me and was counting them out? i was, I got to admit, I was kind of counting them out And then uh, I fell asleep last night, like 10.30 around there. I didn't know the conclusion. I woke up this morning, and there were like 70 text messages on my phone from all my New England family members saying, are you seeing this? Are you watching this? Did you see that finish? And so I went and watched it. If you have not seen it, I recommend going on YouTube later today, not right now, but later today, (laughs) go on YouTube and watch the recap of that game and see with literally not one second remaining, but .1 seconds remaining, a little put back by White goes into the, into the hoop, and the Celtics win game six, and now they're tied three to three, and they go back to the garden, right? The last date, right? Tomorrow night in the garden. So, so uh, yeah, exciting stuff. So that's the will to live, okay? And that helps us, actually, that little uh, kind of uh, convenient that that comes up at this time because that helps us move from the, the idea of the natural or physical will to live and it helps us transition to something a little deeper which I'll call the spiritual will to live, okay? So there's the natural level. We know our bodies need certain things to survive. Then there's this sort of soul level where we, we need certain things in this world to survive on the soul level too. Or, let me clarify it this way, or we think we need certain things in this world in order to survive, and frankly, not just to survive, but we, we all want more than just survival. We, we want not just to survive, but to thrive, don't we? we? I mean, we want to feel like life is satisfying and rewarding. And there's this soul-level craving or drive or impulse or motivation to try to get what we think we need in this world. It's kind of like our spiritual will to live. It's another dimension of this will to live topic. It's a deeper dimension. It's a, it's a, it's a more subtle dimension. It's, a, in a very real sense, a darker dimension because it actually is the root of where all of our sin comes from, where all of our sin comes from. It's a manifestation of that drive to get what we think we must have in this world and what we fight for so tenaciously and so aggressively. In this passage in John 6, Jesus confronts both these levels of the will to live. And he shows forth, he magnifies God's commitment to give. And not just to give generically, but to give us life. To give us eternal life. To give us what we really need. There's what we want, and there's a fine line between what we want and we think we need. And there's what we actually need, and God knows what we actually need, and through Jesus He has more than provided for what we actually need. And that's what we're going to see this morning. The simple outline is this: One, our will to live. We'll say a little bit more of that and I'll, about that, and I'll show you in the text where we see it. And then secondly, the second big idea is His will to give, okay? Just following along with the The sermon title, those are our two points. Our will to live, his will to give. And I just want to say, as a preface, as we get into this, naturally speaking, and I'm asking and I'm I'm praying that God gives us humility to receive this. Naturally speaking, you don't really want God. That's the bad news. Naturally speaking, just in case you didn't hear me, you don't really want God. Not, Not for God himself. Not for who he is. Naturally speaking, the appetite is just not there. The good news is, he wants you. That's what we're going to see this morning, and we're going to be amazed by the grace of God, the love of God. So first of all, let's say a little bit more about our will to live. Look at verse 11 of John chapter 6. So we're going to jump around a little bit. We're going to make our way back to the main section there, verse 36 and following, but but look at verse 11 for a moment. You remember the context. Crowds of people are flocking to Jesus. They want to hear from him and they want to see miracles. And Jesus knows they're all hungry and so he multiplies the bread and the fish and he feeds all these people, thousands and thousands of people, probably somewhere around, around 25,000 people. And I want you to notice what it says in verse 11. It says, Jesus then took the loaves And having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. Now notice that last word in the sentence, wanted. That is the Greek word for will. It's related to the idea of wish. As much as they wished for. So I want you to think about this. There was their actual physical need for bread that if without it they will starve and die, and Jesus provided them bread for their bodies. There was that, and then there was this sort of desire for more than just what was adequate, more than just what was sufficient. They wanted abundance. They wanted much more. And as we as we've moved through the text, and we've kind of made it halfway through the, the chapter by this point in our week by week series, and we've seen that they that they wanted more of this bread. And and uh, last week we talked about this. It's in verse. 28 and following, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work will you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So you see, they're saying, hey, uh, back there, our ancestors, they had lots of bread and so would you make us some more bread? In fact, in my study recently, I learned that uh, rabbis in those days predicted that when the Messiah came, they looked forward to him coming and giving them bread from heaven that was in such abundance that they would be able to eat to their heart's content. That's one of the things they looked forward to. They, they believed, they anticipated that would be part of the Messiah's coming. So they're saying, if you're really him, then give us a lot of bread. Not just adequate amount, not just a sufficient amount to keep us alive, but give us a lot. Like That's what they wanted, that's what they craved. And along with this, you may know this as well, but along with that, they also wanted the kingdom. They wanted, hey, you come and reign, you come and like put basically uh, elevate Israel, put us in charge, put off our the Romans and our other oppressors, just like deal, deal a death blow to them, and put us in charge and and all the good things that we 'll have in this world, God, if you just give those things to us and we can have those things, life will just be great that 's what they wanted that 's what they craved that 's what they were feeling like they needed now notice another occurrence of this same Greek term, translated a little different in English, but look at verse 21 of chapter 6. This is another scene in this chapter, and we spent a week on this passage, where Jesus walks on the water, and the disciples are in the boat, and they are fearful. And just then, they see Jesus walking on the water. He calms the storm, and he gets in the boat, and look what it says in verse 21. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. If you have the ESV, it says they were glad to receive him. If you have the the, the NET, it says they wanted him to get in the boat. This is the same word as the word we just looked at a few moments ago in verse 11. It's the same word. They willed for him. They wished for him to get in the boat because their lives were in danger and they needed him to rescue them. So this too is on that level, that natural level of survival The threats here were the threats of starvation was the first threat and that's where the crowds were and Jesus fed them. Then there's the threat of drowning here in this storm and Jesus provides for that need as well by calming the storm. And With all of that, there was within them both of these dimensions of the will to live, the will to survive and the will to thrive. So let's just think a little bit more about that before we look at God's will and what this text reveals to us about his desire, his will. In counseling, I often ask people, because I sit with and talk with so many people, I often ask, hey, paint, paint me the picture of the ideal life. Like, what does that look like for you? You know, who's there and what do you have and what are you up to and what's that look like from a career perspective? And, and they'll talk to me about what it is they envision for their lives or what they want for their lives And then I'll often ask this follow-up question, what is it about your life or what you hope could be a part of your life that would make your life worth living? So there's the idea of, okay, what do you envision? But then there's like, what makes life worth living, like really worth living? And then people talk about all sorts of things. Their relational expectations, uh, material things, professional goals they have health and wellness goals, they have all sorts of things, and we're getting to this idea of what it is they, they feel like makes life really worth living. And sometimes, by contrast, I'll ask, you know, what is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that you, that you wake up in the morning thinking about, you're preoccupied with? Maybe experiencing stress. Do you ever experience this where you wake up in the middle of the night and you notice that your, your jaws are just clenched together? Any of you grinders in here that wear the little plastic mouth guard? I'm, I'm one of those. Probably have some others in here. And, and I notice sometimes, I, I don't even necessarily feel like I'm under any known stress of any kind, but yet I wake up and I'm just, or sometimes, and this is part of middle age, which is fun, right? Middle age folks in here, you wake up, you don't even know what you did, but your back is completely sore and you're stuck and you get out of bed and you're like this and then it takes you like a while to finally stretch out and stand up straight. Sometimes we can't even connect the dots. We don't even know why, but I'll tell you why, according to biblical truth. There's one reason we can know for sure that that happens. It's because we're just stressed because we're trying to fight and scrap our way through life. And there's stuff going on that's so, so difficult, and we're trying so hard to get to, not just to survive, sometimes it's just basically to survive, right? Other times, like, well, I want to survive, but it'd be nice to have a little peace, too. Can we have just a little bit of that? And so we're just knuckling our way through, and we feel it in our minds, and we feel it even in our bodies, don't we? I mean, sometimes we have aches and pains that are due to an accident or something else like that. But even those are exacerbated, are they not, by our stress, by our struggles, by our anxiety? For sure. And it's all part of this this will to live what we're fighting for. And in one sense, that is natural and normal and even appropriate. And God gave us the will to live. That's a God-given gift. But on another level, it just plagues us, doesn't it? It just poisons so much. It makes our lives so painful. And it's also, like as I said earlier, a root of so much of our frustration and so much of our conflict with other people. I mean, it's what causes, it's what causes on one level the workaholic who sacrifices his own body and time and sleep and even his own family just to get some respect. Got to, got to have that respect. Or it's the same thing that you see when you're in Walmart and a five-year-old in the next aisle is throwing a temper tantrum because his mom won't buy him the toy that he absolutely must have. It's that fight. It's that craving. It literally seems like it's on the level of like life or death. It's what causes siblings to fight over everything siblings fight over, fighting our way through. And there's a God in heaven who's filled with mercy, compassion. So let's look at what the text says here. Go to verse, we'll start in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And this is amazing in a negative way. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you don't believe. I think it was last week I highlighted all the verses throughout John 6 as many, many times it says they didn't believe in him. They grumbled, they complained, they were against him. I mean, he's offering them himself. He's offering them God, and they're grumbling, complaining, rejecting and not believing. And then look what he says. And this is where we start to get into this idea of God's will. Verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. What he's essentially saying is this. God wills to give you the bread of life. Your preoccupation and my preoccupation so often is the bread of earth. And He wills to give us the bread of heaven. Another way to say that is He wills to give us Christ. And in Christ, eternal life. And, and there is, let's, let's first look at this part. There is... There is Christ's part in this, and we see that in verse 37, uh, sorry, verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Here again, we have that same term of will, okay? He said, I came not to do my own will. This This is Jesus living in this world, but living in such a remarkable way, and that is an understatement because unlike us, he is not tied to the things in this world. Unlike us, he knows that what he needs most is his father and he knows that he has his father and that is his source of mutual, enjoyed, spiritual life. He knows that. And so that you see him in John chapter 4 where he's ministering and he's laboring and the disciples stop and say, aren't you hungry? Don't you need something to eat? And you remember what he says? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Even his natural appetites, he's able to just subdue in that moment, just say, I'm here to do what my Father has called me to do. Later in the garden, it's recorded in Matthew, but Jesus knows he's going to the cross and he is struggling. He He is experiencing human weakness and suffering and he feels it. And he feels even the human temptation, which we so often succumb to, but he did not. He feels the temptation to turn against his Father, but he does not turn. He does not sin against his father. Instead, he says this Not my will, but your will be done. Remember that? Jesus is the one human being in this world. God, God in the flesh, in his humanness, he's the one human being in this world who lived with that type of freedom, fully committed and devoted to his father, fully enjoying the life of that relationship with his father at every moment. Can you imagine? I mean, that's how he lived his life. And that is why he was able to love and serve and give and lay his life down and pour it out without, without the outbursts of rage and impatience and greed and lust and all the things that so often plague us. Christ was not beholden or enslaved to this natural world and its material things. And even its order, Jesus can say no to all those earthly appetites. So it begins with this provision of eternal life, this provision of living bread, the bread of heaven, it begins with Jesus himself being willing to come for us, to come to rescue us, to come to rescue those who are stiff arming God, stiff arming God in their own addiction to self salvation to doing it ourselves, to get, to securing ourselves, to satisfying ourselves, to proving ourselves, to pleasing ourselves. I and mean, we're stiff-arming God, and God says, go and rescue them. They don't want me, but, but I want them. I will to redeem them. I will to give them life. I will, Jesus, for you to go and save them. And it begins with his humility, his coming for us. His bread being to do the will of His Father. And so let's talk a little bit more about that will of the Father. It says in verse 39, This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And He repeats, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. He wills to give us the bread of life. He wills to give us eternal life. He wills to give us Christ. He wills to give us His Spirit. He wills to give us Himself. He brings us to where we otherwise wouldn't go because naturally speaking, as we've been saying, we just don't have the appetite. Not only do we not have the appetite for God in the reality and the truth of who He is, naturally speaking, but we certainly don't have the appetite for the kind of humiliation and resignation and acceptance of our utter bankruptcy, the fact that we are needy beggars just there begging for bread, that's not a place naturally we want to find ourselves. It goes, every, it goes it's diametrically opposed to every fiber of the being of our flesh to admit that we don't have life in ourselves. That's what he says later. And We looked at it last week when we talked about communion. Where he says, if you don't take this in, if you don't take in my flesh and my blood, you have no life in yourselves. We want to keep working, crawling, clawing our way. That's our will, but his will is to rescue us. So let's look at how he does it. And this is kind of our final explanation of the text here. But read with me. Verse 37, and then we're going to jump ahead from 41 to 48, and we're going to see three ways by which God gives us life. Three ways by which he gives us life, okay? Verse 37, all the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. First of all, it just says that he gives us to Christ. The only way we ever get to Jesus is if God the Father gives us to Christ. Throughout this passage, the word gives comes up over and over. There's all this generosity of God. And here it's making this precise point that we end up in Christ because the Father gives us to him. I officiated a wedding on Friday. I'm officiating one later this afternoon. And I always think of this imagery of the Father walking the bride down the aisle and giving the bride over to the groom. And this is that idea, the Father drawing Giving the bride to his son. Giving us to his son. And the Bible paints that picture beautifully throughout from cover to cover. So first, they'd have giving. Now read, um, jump down to verse 41. It says, Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? I mean, we know this guy. This is, he's, there's nothing special about, about him. How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So here we see the second way. First, it's the Father gives his people to Christ. Secondly, the Father draws them. And this word is fascinating. It's actually the word could, could be could be translated drags. Drags us to Christ. Like uh, dragging, kicking, and screaming sometimes drags us to Christ because, because otherwise we wouldn't come, right? We, we, just, we just continue the self-sabotage. We, we just continue the suicide mission. And God loves us and so he says, I'm drawing you to Christ. I, I, I like this idea. I use this idea often in some of the things I've written in the past. But it's like God's tractor beam love just, just pulls us in. It says he draws. And if he doesn't draw, we would not come. Let's keep reading and notice the third way. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. So here's the third way. He teaches us. Let's just finish reading the section. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. So this idea of being taught of God, instructed by God, uh, elsewhere in the New Testament it says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, no one says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit the fathers involved the spirit is involved that we just it's not something we come to naturally we have we have maybe a natural inclination to believe in god in some sense romans 1 says we all know that there's a creator and he's powerful we know certain things and we we may even be drawn to god as as some kind of a uh, butler to bring us what we want as per the pharisaical way, where like they were doing the right things and they were committed to Scripture and even committed to God and would have said they love God. But in reality, it was really just about their cravings. It's really just about what they longed for and what they needed in this material world, what they just must have. And this is very different. <laughs> this, is, this is finding God to be, ready? This is finding God himself to be the bread. Catch the distinction? Not what he gives us, but himself. And for us to get that, it's a miracle. And the only way it happens is if he gives us to Christ, and if he draws us to Christ, and it's if it's if he teaches us of Christ. It's if he, he opens our minds to see and believe, one, that we need him, that we need him desperately, and two, that Christ is absolutely everything we need. And, and to... Um, punctuate this with an exclamation point over and over and over again. He says, and I will raise him up on the last day. I will give you myself. I will give you my life. And when you face your, your most um, ominous, threatening opponent, namely death, even then it can't conquer you because I will raise you up on the last day. Yeah, amen. Amen to that. In this broken, fallen world, right? Thank you, God. Here is the greatest marvel that though you don't want him, he does want you. Though you don't have a natural appetite for the bread of heaven, he's determined to give it to you. He's communicating to you right right now, this morning. You might say, well, this is is like just conversion. These are people who didn't know Jesus and they come to conversion and, and obviously it's that and throughout even our Christian lives in this world, embodied in this flesh, we are continually in need of God to draw us, to bring us, to convince us, to persuade us that He is good, that He is life, that He's our bread. Not only is it true, but we need it to be true. Because there is hope nowhere else. There's not hope when I look in here and there's not hope when I look out there. There's only hope, uh, as the psalmist said. I look to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord. Period. There's a book I read years ago that I've appreciated. It's called Seculosity, and the author is talking about our culture and how our culture has become increasingly secular, has turned its back on religion, and more uh, and higher percentages of the population, higher, higher, uh, demographically speaking. Okay, and so the book goes into. How interesting it is that though people have rejected religion, they have just adopted a new religion. They may have turned away from one old traditional religion of works, but they have turned to just a new religion of works. And he talks about how things like career, parenting, technology, food, politics, romance, all these things are still works-oriented religions. There's a sacredness to them and there's a work to them. There's a self-salvation to them. He's describing that. And in the end of the book, there's a fascinating illustration that resonated with me. I'm going to share it with you. And it brings all the thoughts together that we've been talking about this morning. He says this, This past summer, the lesson we never seemed to learn slapped me in the face again. And the lesson is the lesson of God's grace. He says, My family and I had just arrived at the beach. We had been cooped up in a car all day, counting the seconds until we'd feel the sand under our toes. My oldest son in particular was chomping at the bit. The beach you see is his favorite place on earth, which is why my heart sank like a stone when I spied the sign on the lifeguard tower, caution, Riptide. I knew my only recourse would be to tell a story that had taken on an almost mythic status in our family. The time your grandfather got caught in a Riptide and almost died. It happened when my wife was young. One summer during their annual beach pilgrimage, an unseen current swept her father out to sea without any warning. It was a clear day. He was an experienced swimmer, but that didn't matter. One second he was in view, enjoying the surf. The next he was receding toward the horizon, his wife and daughters frantically shouting his name. He survived, thank God, but the experience traumatized everyone who witnessed it. I don't know exactly what causes a riptide, Friends have tried to explain it to me numerous times, but the details remain fuzzy. Something about rising water and uneven levels of beach. What I do know is that you don't want to get stuck in one. And you definitely don't want one of your kids to. Shark attacks may get all the press, but riptides actually pose the biggest threat to beachgoers today. They account for about 100 deaths every year along the U.S. coastline. And the reason people drown, this is really important, The reason people drown is that they panic and swim against the current toward the shore. The force of the water not only exhausts their energy, it drags them under. The whole thing is extremely scary. While I may not be sure of what causes a riptide or even how to spot one, my wife has made sure I know how to survive one. The key, it turns out, is not to resist, but to go with the flow. No joke. Instead of exerting yourself, Allow the current to take you out to sea. The tidal forces will settle after a minute or two and dump you in a safer spot. Your life literally depends on letting go of control. So let that sink in for a moment. And then I'll read one last section regarding that. Until this point, I only told my son half the story of the day your grandfather got caught in a riptide and almost died. The rest is too strange and too miraculous. You see, son, your grandfather relaxed into the current, but that only kept him alive long enough to be dragged out into the Atlantic. Yet it was there, in the overflowing expanse of the sea, bereft of hope that your grandfather ran into him. Some man in flippers was swimming past, like, likely training for a triathlon or some such thing, this angel of a deep-watered enthusiast swooped in, hauled your grandfather to shore, and then revived him. And that's why he's alive today. He was rescued. That riptide is like the heart of God, the heart of the Father, drawing you to Christ. And what it feels like at first is, it feels like, being drawn to our own death. And the temptation is the tendency to struggle and strain and fight, to, to dig into, to sort of patch into that deep-rooted will-to-live thing. To stress, to strain, to claw our way to survival. Meanwhile, God is drawing us and saying, you don't need to save yourself. You can't save yourself. You don't have any ability to save yourself. You don't have any life in yourself. You can't give yourself life. You really can't preserve your life. Ultimately, you can do certain things, physically speaking. But you, you really can't ultimately preserve your life as long as you would want to. And you certainly can't cause yourself to rise from the dead. But he can. <laughs> and he's done everything necessary through Christ to make all that possible. And so he draws us. And what that feels like on our part is it feels like panic and it feels like stress and it feels like struggle and it feels like I can't control this but I need to control this. It feels like that. And then and then it feels like comfort and it feels like rescue and it feels like your Savior has you and it feels like your Savior has given you everything you need. He's given you Himself. He's assured you that you belong to your creator, that you have a relationship with him, that you're reconciled to him, that your sin is all forgiven and washed away, that you're adopted into his family, that you're redeemed, that you're reconciled, that you're restored, that you're made whole, that you're complete in Christ, and that you're on your way to glory, to be in his presence forever. 100% on the basis of what he has done for you, because he's your rescuer. And as we, that can sound dumb, you're responsible. But as we learn to rest in Him, it's that place from which all the fruits of love and joy and peace flow. Because the only way I can love someone else, the only way I can serve someone else, the only way I can bear someone else's burden is if I'm not completely obsessed with my own. And the only way I'm not obsessed with my own is if I can believe God when He says, You have life, you've got everything you need. You see how that works? So implications not just for the beginning of our Christian life, but for every single moment of our Christian life. I hope that's an encouragement to you as it is to me. Let us pray. Lord, as we close in prayer, I think of um, what Peter's response was when your son said to him, uh, you're not going to go away also, are you? And he said, Lord, to whom will we go? Where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's the cry of our hearts this morning as well, Lord, that you have the words of eternal life. So we thank you for Christ. We thank you for who he is and what he's done. We thank you for his words preached to those people thousands of years ago, but recorded for us to read today, to think about carefully, to be nourished by his being the bread of life. And Lord, as we catch ourselves in our will-to-live tendencies. Help us. Help us to remember the gospel, to remember the truth of rescue. Help us to trust in Jesus and Him crucified and Him resurrected. Help us to believe that it's no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us, that we might live our life in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. Help us to believe this. And we thank you so much for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. It's in Christ's name we give you all the praise. Amen.